Every one of us probably has someone in our circle of friends who is that person. It's the one who always seems to see the movie before you do or watches the television series before you ever have a chance to watch it and who just can't wait to tell you how it ends before you ever have a chance to see it. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you tonight we have a spoiler alert and that is we're going to talk about the end of the book of Jonah. If you've never read the book of Jonah, sorry, you're getting ready to find out how the story ends. I want you to turn your Bibles to that book, the book of Jonah. It may actually open your Bibles to just one opening. I know in my Bible, chapters 1 and 2 are on one page and 3 and 4 are on the very next page. But the book of Jonah, of course, is one of the most well-known accounts in all of the Bible. And from the youngest of ages, we teach our children this story because it's so intriguing, it's interesting, it's even exciting. And most of the time, of course, we focus on kind of a cartoonish picture of this man and a whale or a fish or a sea creature or whatever this thing was. But typically, the younger the child, we simply end our telling of the story by reminding them that Jonah repented, he went, he preached to Nineveh, and the people of Nineveh turned to, the God, uh, to God. And all of that's true. But those of us who have read the book of Jonah all the way to its conclusion and paid attention know that, as Paul Harvey used to say, there is the rest of the story. It would be so wonderful if the book of Jonah ended at what what we call the end of chapter 3. I mean, if you're in Jonah, just just glance at it because in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3, we're told that the people of Nineveh, that very wicked city, but everyone from the king down to all the commoners decided to repent and to turn to God based upon this very short sermon of Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then very beautifully, in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, we're told, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now that's beautiful. Wouldn't that be a wonderful ending? They hear the message from God, they repent, God relents from the disaster he's going to send, he forgives them, and if this were a movie, we can just see everyone in the theater smiling, the screen turning to black, the lights in the theater coming back up, the credits getting ready to roll, and everyone walking out with a smile on their face, because this beautiful Hollywood-like ending. But this isn't a movie. This is real life. And this book is about a very real man, who, yes, did an amazing deed in preaching to the wicked city, but who also had a great deal in his own heart that he had to work through. And because that's true, we have Jonah chapter 4. And basically, in chapter 4, we see Jonah, having completed that work of preaching, going out to a nearby hillside to watch the destruction of these pagan, wicked, cruel enemies, only to realize that God really is going to forgive them, that God really is going to let them stand. And Jonah can't stand it. Jonah may very well be the only preacher who has ever lived who preached a sermon, had everyone respond and couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand that God actually forgave all of these people. We could even go so far as to say he quite hated it. And he may have even resented God for forgiving this forgiveness. And so in chapter 4, God seeks to work on Jonah's heart. Just as the message that Jonah had preached to Nineveh worked on the hearts of the people of that city. 
Jonah was despondent and he was angry. He even asked the Lord to end his life back up in verse 3 of chapter 4. But God asked a very short but very insightful question. If you're in Jonah 4, notice the question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? In other words, Jonah, is this level of rage, is this level of anger really doing you any good? By the way, how often would each of us do well to ask ourselves that question at different times? But Jonah is so angry, he is so frustrated, he cannot believe that God would actually forgive these enemies of his and these pagan people that he goes out to see if they'll be destroyed in verse 5. But God, in his grace, takes care of Jonah despite this horrible attitude that Jonah was displaying. But God also uses the latter few verses of this very short book to teach the prophet a lesson about who was really in control and what really matters. If you're in Jonah 4, read verse 6 with me. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now take note of this next little sentence. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, you know as well as I do, the Bible does not use any words without purpose. Every word is important. And so when we're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad, that's exactly what's going on. Literally, by the way, the Hebrew text reads that Jonah was greatly filled with mirth and gladness. We might say that nothing in this world could have made Jonah any happier right then than this little plant. But God was teaching Jonah something. And so in verse 7, God sends a worm and it destroys, it eats the plant. And then verse 8, where we began reading our scripture reading tonight, shows us that God sent a wind. And without the, the shade that this plant provided, Jonah is now exposed to the elements. He's out in the open, and the wind and the sun are beating upon him, it seems like mercilessly. In fact, the middle of verse 8, if you notice it, gives the little detail that Jonah was faint due to the sun and the wind and all these elements coming upon him. And it's at this point that God begins to ask some very interesting questions. Since that plant came and went, Jonah again was angry and frustrated. And so the Lord asks in verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Does that question sound familiar? It's very similar to what God had just asked a handful of verses earlier, isn't it? He's reminding Job, I've already asked you this question. Now, Jonah's answer should have kind of stuck in his mouth before he ever actually said it. Because if he had really been thinking properly, he would have realized that he is about to give basically the same answer about a plant that he had just given a little while earlier about people. And so verse 9 continues with Jonah's answer, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, wait a second. He was frustrated and angry because God was willing to forgive pagan people and angry people. We, we can almost understand that. But to be angry enough to die because of a plant? Because a plant died? It is to these words that God responds. And the response that God gives is beautiful. But it also provides for us one of the most curious endings of any book in all of the Bible. Notice verses 10 and 11. God says to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now, if we were writing this book, we might wait for a second with our pen still in our hand and wait for Jonah's response to write it down. Or at the very least, wait for God to sort of pause for a second, let that question hang in the air for a second, and then expect God to speak again, and we would write that down as the conclusion or maybe the continuation of the story. But folks, this is where the book of Jonah ends, with this question. And it just hangs in the air. And we're calling tonight's lesson, Jonah's unfinished ending. I don't mean by that at all that there is more to the book of Jonah. You'll see what I mean by that title in just a few moments. But I want you to think, this is a curious ending to a book, isn't it? There's really no conclusion. It is a question that is just left hanging in the air. Should I not have pity on this city? End of story. Tonight, what I want to do is look at that question that God gives found in Jonah 4. And I want us to see that there is a temptation that Jonah shows throughout this book, especially chapter 4, that if we are not careful, we can sometimes face. But that in God's question that ends the book, God gives a very clear and beautiful solution to that temptation. First of all, notice that temptation. I love the book of Jonah, and I'm glad we teach it to our children But one of the facts about this book is that Jonah himself has a major problem. We might even say a character flaw. We need to remember that he did not just run away from God's assignment found in Jonah chapter 1, but also why Jonah ran from that assignment. Now the easy answer to that, of course, is, well, he was scared. He was fearful. After all, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and these are cruel, warring people. They were pagan. They were awful. It would be normal to, to fear them. And further, this is a huge city, and Jonah's just one person. The verse we just read, Jonah 4 and verse 11, says there were 120,000 persons in the city. By the way, some scholars suggest that persons there just means men of fighting age. And whether that's the case or not, we do know that at one time in ancient history, the city of Nineveh had a population of over 600,000 people. But whether it's that large at this time or whether the total population is just 120,000, the odds for one person going into this city don't look too good. And then there's the matter of the cruelty of these people. One scholar writes this, Nineveh was as as wicked as it was impressive. The Assyrians were notoriously brutal and wicked people. Assyrian kings boasted of the horrific ways in which they massacred their enemies and mutilated their captives. They posed a clear and present danger to the national security of Israel, end quote. And so it would be right if we just said, well, Jonah is just afraid. But could there not be more? to why Jonah went the other way, and then why Jonah did not like it when these people repented and God decided to forgive. And we see it hinted at very strongly, if not specifically mentioned, in Jonah chapter 4. After Jonah preached and these people repent, Jonah's upset. He did not think these people were worthy of the grace and the forgiveness of God. 
He did not want his enemies, the enemies of himself and his people, to receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God. In fact, Jonah rather hated the thought of God forgiving these people and bringing real restoration to them. Again, notice verse 2 of chapter 4, where Jonah said in a prayer to God, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow and anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now the description that Jonah gives of God in the latter part of that verse is beautiful, isn't it? But what he says is, this is what I knew you would do. I knew you would forgive these people. And we can imply they don't deserve it. He doesn't say I fled out of fear, although that could be part of it. But because I knew, he says, I I know God well enough to know you'll actually forgive these people. You'll actually forgive these lowlifes. You'll actually forgive these enemies. Now, I don't want to charge Jonah with more than the text reveals to us, but I think it's right to say that he carried a great deal of prejudice against these people. It's possibly even possible he absolutely hated them. But on the flip side of that, when God brings up a plant and that plant takes care of Jonah, well, that's just quite all right, isn't it? That just makes Jonah feel fantastic. After all, he had done this difficult work. It it, it had been a serious wake-up call. He needed, of course, the part of the story about the whale. But Jonah did finally go into this pagan city, this huge city, and he did actually preach the sermon. and, And it seemed like a repulsive task, but he actually went through with it. And so in his mind, when God brought this plant with him, a plant to shade him, well, that's just only right. After all, Jonah's the faithful one here, and God should have rewarded him, right? But then when God caused that plant to wither and die, well, that's just not right. Here, here I am, Jonah thinks, here I am being punished. While those wicked people over there in Nineveh, they're, they're getting a second chance. Are you starting to see the temptation that can even grow in our hearts if we're not careful? If we are Christians, we have given up the world, or at least I hope we have. We come to worship. We follow all of these commands in the Bible as best we can. And if we are not careful, we can begin to look at people outside these walls who are doing terrible things and think those people aren't worthy of the message of the gospel. And that God should just take care of me and take care of us because after all, I'm doing what's right and I deserve it. You don't believe me? Let me share with you some things that people have actually said to me over the years I've been in ministry. I had a lady one time tell me, a member of the church tell me one time, that the church should not be sending money to missionaries overseas because people in America are the ones who need to hear the gospel. I had someone tell me one time that the first thing we should ever cut from the church budget is mission work because... We have to take care of ourselves. And I don't know how many times I've had people tell me that the church needs to take care of their little group of the church. Maybe the old folks need more money or the young people need more money or singles need more money or whatever it was without so much ever a thought of the fact that some money needs to go towards reaching the lost. Folks, it is way too easy for us to think that because we show up to the church building and drop some money in a plate on Sunday morning, that the Lord should just take care of me and people out there who don't care about what we do, they can just fend for themselves. 
Or, if I'm not careful, we can have the mindset that the church, the church needs to serve other people. I mean, that's obvious, but as long as those people are as much like we are already as possible. I need to challenge our thinking, including my own. Sometimes we talk really big, and I say we, including myself, about the fact that church needs to serve the community. We need to be in the community, serve the community, and absolutely that's true. But how many of us, when we say that type of thing, have in our mind a picture of a portion of a community that looks conspicuously already just like us? Folks, we need to think about how we can serve all of the community. The poor, the downtrodden, those who struggle with broken homes, those who struggle even to eat, those who are on drugs, and on and on it goes. How many of us, when a missionary comes to report, we we listen to that presentation, we give careful attention, we we think the pictures are just fantastic, and then we go out the back and maybe we shake that person's hand and we say, boy, that's just wonderful, and then we seem to always want to add this tagline, you know, I never could do that. Now, there may be legitimate reasons for that, maybe medical in nature or something along those lines, but most of us, if we're honest, what we really mean is, I couldn't give up what I have here to actually go somewhere where people have lower standards of living or where it's dangerous to preach the truth. We need to realize that for a lot of us, the same temptation that Jonah had can creep very slowly and very clearly into our heart. And because we're bearing the burden, as we think, for the Lord, and we're, we're making sure that we do what's right, we deserve some kind of protection from God. Well, anyone who opposes the Lord, or anyone who stands as an enemy to Christianity, well, we just don't have to worry about those people. After all, they just don't care at all. They should just be left to fend for themselves. And folks, we better not think that way. But we can be tempted to. And that's where God's question at the end of the book comes in, and it is the solution. The solution is found in that question that leaves us hanging at the end of the book of Jonah. Read again with me verse 11. And should I not pity, God asked, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What is the solution to that temptation? The solution is this. Every one of us must remember that every single individual on the face of this earth is made in the image of God, and He has pity for each and every one of them. And that included me and included you. Our priority must always be the message of the gospel instead of my own personal agenda. That's when we give God the glory. Listen, none of us in this room None of us deserved to hear about God. None of us deserved to hear about the message of salvation. None of us earned that. When we choose, when we chose to sin, we chose to separate ourselves from God, Isaiah 59 tells us. But God had pity on us. He had mercy on us. And even though Romans 5.10 tells us we make ourselves God's enemy when we choose to sin, He still sent His Son. He had pity on you and on me. God did not create castes. He did not create classes. God created human beings in his own image. But every one of those human beings, save Christ himself, have sinned. But all also need to be saved. And so he sends us as his ambassadors into all the world. 
Not just to look for some who, who look like us, not just to look for some who are easy to talk to, but to look for everyone who needs to hear the gospel because all have sinned. And yes, that means that ISIS needs to hear the gospel. Yes, that means that those who are living in a homosexual marriage need to hear the gospel. Yes, it means that those who are right now at this moment selling drugs in our very own community, they need to hear the gospel. Yes, it means that person you work with who who comes in drunk and cusses you out and makes fun of you for going to that stupid church over there, he or she needs to hear the gospel. Yes, it means that person at school who treats you like dirt but somehow is still the most popular person at school, he or she needs to hear the gospel. And yes, it means that God expects each and every one of us to speak the truth in love to every single person. That's what it means. Why? Because those people out there are like the ones in Nineveh. They think they have it all together. But did you notice what God said about the people in Nineveh? They don't even know their right hand from their left. In his view, they didn't even know which way they were going. And people without the gospel think They have it all together. And God says, they don't know their right hand from their left. And it's up to you to tell them, I still have pity on them. I still have mercy for them. They're the ones who are like the ones of Jesus' day, who are like sheep, but without a shepherd. They are in reality just like each and every one of us who are Christians were before someone loved us enough to tell us that God loves you and that God offers you a way to heaven, though you don't deserve it. They're lost. But they can be saved by the same blood that flowed from Calvary that saved each of us. This is not a new temptation, and it's not a new solution. And we know that because we see it all the way in this book that's written hundreds of years before even Jesus ever came on the scene, all the way back in, in Jonah. But it continues it continued throughout the time until someone stands up and reminds even God's people of the universal love of God and the universal need for the gospel. There are people who are constantly tempted including myself at times, to only look to ourselves or or to our own little circle or to people who look just like me. And I'll, I'll talk to them when there is a world of people out there who are lost and who are dying without Christ. And that God does not suggest, God absolutely demands that we do everything we can to tell all of them about the gospel. I know the problem existed in the first half of the 1900s. And I know that because there was a man named J.M. McCaleb. He was a missionary to Japan. And of course, as world events unfolded in the early decades of the 20th century, that became a fairly unpopular place to spread the gospel. But J.M. McCaleb still knew that those people, though they were looked upon with prejudice and even hatred for several years, needed the gospel. And to help others understand why he would go there and talk to those people and why they needed to help him in that, he wrote words that need to continue to be in our hearts and our minds with every breath we take. He wrote, Of one the Lord has made the race. Through one has come the fall. Where sin has gone must go his grace. The gospel is for all. Say not the heathen are at home beyond we have no call. For why should we be blessed alone? The gospel is for all. Received ye freely, freely give. From every land they call. Unless they hear, they cannot live. The gospel 
is for all. I know it was a problem in the second half of the 20th century. Because in more recent years, two men sat in a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee. And had, they had the same idea as that old hymn, but they were looking at those who were downtrodden, as we might say, even in their own backyard. You see, these two men met at a restaurant, and their waitress that day tried to be cheery, but her eyes gave it away. They could tell that her life was just empty. And as they looked around the restaurant where they were eating, they couldn't help but notice that that same type of face everywhere they looked, people who were trying to look all happy and cheery and But the weight of the world was on their face and their eyes. And so just a few hours later, after that restaurant meeting in 1983, they had written these words. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. We are called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, he's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that we must give our lives for people who need the Lord? You see, the book of Jonah is not unfinished because there's more verses that we just don't have. The reason we're calling the book of Jonah unfinished is because in reality, even those of us who are Christians, we are, if you please, unfinished until we remove the pride from our lives and are willing to share the gospel with all. Because someone was willing to share the gospel with you. Should God have pity on Nineveh? Yes, because God had pity on Adam, and sin is sin. But praise God that just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days, that a few centuries later someone else, someone else stayed somewhere for three days, And it was the Son of God who stayed in the heart of the earth for three days and overcame death out of the pity of God for me and for you. And until we are willing to tell every person that story, our lives, our mission, our work is unfinished. Tonight, Do you need to begin that walk? The one that begins when you meet Jesus who died on the cross for you, who died for you, and who was in the heart of the earth for three days, but overcame that. You meet him in the waters of baptism, based upon your faith in him, turning from sin, confessing him as Lord, and then being baptized, immersed in water, so that you yourself picture the death and the burial, but then the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe tonight you've never done that, but it's time for you to do that. Or maybe you as a Christian... Maybe it's an issue of what we've been talking about tonight or just some other issue in your life where you've walked off the path and you want to rededicate your life in faithfulness and to make certain that you are walking with God every day because you want to be not perfect every day as best you can be. You want to live a life that's full, that's complete, and that every person sees the light of Christ shining in your life because we are to be a shining light. That's our goal. That's our life. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, 
or if you need to return in faithfulness, we invite and we beg you to come while we stand and while we sing to encourage you.